in a world with zero fucks. All Fucks Welcome creates stories for the conscious conversation with no fake fucks. Let's introduce Diana. Hey, 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 everybody. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for tuning in tonight, friends. This episode of All Fucks Welcome is brought to you by Miracles of Joy Metaphysical Store and Spiritual Center, a fabulous store to help you be a complete spiritual fucking badass. They have one of the largest arrays of crystals, incense, herbs, books, singing bowls, and so many more spiritual tools for your toolbox. It is my go-to for all of our needs, so go to their website, www.miraclesofjoy.org or go to their store and mention AFW for 10% off your total purchase. If you're looking for a spiritual store that is calming, peaceful, and compassionate to your needs, tell them AFW sent you. So let's get this fucking show started already. This gent is a guy who almost every time he posts on Instagram video, I cry my eyes out over his passion. He has touched my heart, and I am certain that he will touch yours too. So please welcome veteran comedian, mo motivational speaker, and founder of the Bobby Henline Forging Forward Foundation, Bobby Henline. Hey, how are you doing? Very well. How are you, Bobby? Welcome. Doing good, good, good. So I always like to you know, start from the beginning. So where were you from, and how were you raised? I was raised in the jungle by wolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this is how this is going to go. <laughs> no, I, uh, oh, I come from, uh, my, my dad was in the Navy. Uh, my mom had my sister at 15, me at 17. At 18, she was divorced with two kids. So wow. I grew, up, grew up with a single mom until I was about 10 years old, and she remarried my stepdad, who's also in the Navy. So I, you know, I pretty much grew up a Navy brat, and bounced around from coast to coast and stuff like that when I was a kid, mostly in California. I mostly was raised in California, bounced around a little bit. Wow. So that's, um, you've, you've had military in your life the entire time. Right, right. Yeah, I was always around the Navy, uh, if you call that military. Uh, they're great supporters. <laughs> oh, oh, was I said out loud? How come I always hear that? How can people say that? We just have to give each other shit. That's what is that what it is? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh my, because I hear that it's whether family. it's that one or the Air Force, I hear yeah. that out of the Air Force it's too. Just like yes. family, you got to make fun of family. But if anybody else does, no, we'll stick up for them. You know? Right, <laughs> right. That is the truth. That is the truth. So, um, let me see here. Hold on here. So, at what point did you realize that you were absolutely going to be going to the military? Was there a defining moment? It's kind of a last second decision. <laughs> really? You know, I, I just dropped out of high school. I wasn't doing anything in my life. I kind of had in the wrong direction. I had the cool mullet, worked at the skating rink. <laughs> oh my God, the wrong I people. love it. I love it. The moulet. Uh, yeah, I'm looking up to the bikers. Like, that's what I want to be when I grow up, you know? And that's what I saw. Um, but it, it was definitely heading in the wrong direction. And my uncle saw that. So he said, hey, let's go in the army together. My uncle's only six years older than me, like a big brother. And so he's okay. going to actually talk me into joining the Army with him. I said, yeah, we should do that. I need to do something in my life. And I was 17 years old. Wow. So you said you dropped out of high school. Yeah, dropped out of high school. Just kind of bored. I CD student. wasn't a great student, but I wasn't failing. Middle of my so, junior year, just I'm bored. You know? No shit. Yeah. So did you have to get your GED before you enrolled? Enlisted? I started. St I'm sorry. Oh, got, uh, yeah, I started to get my GED. Okay. Um, and they called me up and they said, well, you still coming to Army? I said, yeah, I'm just working on getting my GED. And I said, don't worry about that. You need to, we need you to come on in. <laughs> no shit. So they gave us a GED test during basic training. Uh, what happened was, uh, when you look back at it, you realize they knew Desert Storm was coming. They had a feeling a war oh. was going to happen. So, yeah. so they were just enrolling, enlisting. Yeah, there's a lot of us that didn't even have a high school diploma back then that they just brought in there at the same time. And, you know, wow. hindsight, hindsight, you can look back at it and go, all right, I see what you're doing there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you were young. You were yeah. a baby, practically. Right. In the whole scheme of life, right? Yeah, yeah. I turned 19, and a month later, I was off in Desert Storm. Holy shit. That just... 
I remember that war very, very clearly and vividly. And that is insane to be that young going yeah, in there. Were the you time, scared shitless or did you feel like this is this is yeah, where I'm meant to be? This is where I'm meant to be is definitely how I felt, you know, with your buddies okay. gone through basic training with and everything. Uh, it's just weird now looking back because I felt so grown up then. But when my kids, right. were, my kids were 19, I'm like, oh, my God, I was your age. And, you know, I, I already been to war and my kids aren't sure what they want to do. It's just weird. Like looking at my kids at that same age, it didn't seem like. It's different, were, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's weird. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. <laughs> My oldest is what, turning 28 now? And uh, I still feel like she wouldn't be old enough to go in the military, you know? <laughs> yes. But there's a difference. Don't you think there's a difference between how we were raised and how they've been raised? Definitely. I mean, there's definitely a difference between every generation we go through, for sure. Um, and I try to spoil them a little more. I always worked real hard to give them what I never had. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that I think that's a huge part of it for sure. I mean, I know it is for me. Yeah. I just I don't know. There's just, there's just it's just different. It's just different. So you go to Desert Storm as yep. a peanut, as a tiny <laughs> baby, basically. Um, tell us what that experience looked like for you there. Uh, Desert Storm was too bad. Was it? Is a peaceful I want to say peaceful war uh as far yeah what does that mean when you say that peaceful we didn't, war. we didn't see a lot of combat during that time is with, with my unit uh i was in a field artillery unit we're driving a fuel truck uh just filling up tanks so we were doing raids the tanks would go in and do all the raids and stuff like that um and i'd make sure they had fuel to get back and continue the battle and so i didn't get really shot at with small arms fire there's some retaliation with artillery rounds but nothing really close uh, basically came really good at playing volleyball Really? That's awesome. Well, good. You, you've got some great skills out of that one, huh? Yeah. Became a great volleyball player. We'll dig it right out of the sand. Taking a, taking a line out of Top Gun. Right, exactly. Oh, my God, I love it. So when you got out, um, when you got out of Desert Storm, were you married at that point? Well, when I went into the, when I first went in the Army at 17, the girl I was dating at the time, we oh, well, might as well just get married. You know, we're dumb young kids. <laughs> yeah. Let's just get married. So yeah. uh, as soon as I got back from Desert Storm, it was like, yeah, it's, we're dumb. We should have never got married. So we got divorced. So basically at 19, I was already a divorced alcoholic war veteran. Wow. We learned so, quick. <laughs> so how was life adjusting after, after that particular time? It was weird. Uh, looking back now, I could see how I felt when I came back from this one. But back then, I didn't, we didn't recognize it. We didn't talk about it as much. But it's right. the same thing. You know, it turned alcohol to, to hide things, didn't know the feelings, why we had the anger issues. Um, it's just that it's definitely a different thing. But now, looking back at it, like I can say that, okay, I know what it was now. It, it was just more of a kind of a, a fatigue thing more than a, a PTS, you know, like today. It wasn't as bad. Interesting. I mean, that's interesting that you can see the difference now. Between yeah, the two. definitely see the difference. It took some time to be able to get through it. Uh, you know, yeah, whatever happens in your life, whether it's war or a car accident, you know, you got a car accident, mm -hmm. maybe a little shaky and until you're, right. you're driven the car a few more times, you get more comfortable again. And that's why I felt after Desert Storm, you know, it just took a little six months to a year and they're like, all right, I'm back on my track. I remember how I feel now is normal. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of felt like I put it behind me. Wow. Wow. So let's fast forward. Right. And you get married again. Yeah, I get married. Uh, it wasn't that far. Fast forward. <laughs> just had, to, had, to, had to make it to 22 years old. <laughs> I love it. So because now at 22, I'm ready to get married, right? Now, now oh. I'm old and mature. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been through war. I've been through a divorce. <laughs> I love it. Yes, yes. So at 22, you get married. 22, and what year was that? What year was that? 94. Holy shit. <laughs> God, that's taking a step yeah. back, isn't now it? Now I'm feeling yeah. really old. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you get married in 94. My 94, we have three children together. We had his, hers, and ours. Okay. Um, so we had, I mostly had the three children with me that lived with me the whole time that I raised. Then I had another son who had a stepdad in that and lived in a different state. Typical military families. Yep. Yep. And uh, I've worked different jobs. I uh, worked for the railroad in California. Uh, in California too, if you ever live there, it's a ridiculously priced. And if you don't have my education, there. 
yeah, if you don't have an education, you need to work four jobs to make ends mm-hmm. meet. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what I was doing. I was just working for the railroad, uh, doing a, working for the Jewish Community Center, doing maintenance, working at the radio stations. Uh, I flew with that tribute band, Roadie. <laughs> really? I, I did it all. Whatever I could do to make, oh my make God, a couple I extra love bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you kind of sound like my husband. My husband had a few... Uh, if, if, if I could tell you all the jobs my husband had before I met him, it's rather humorous. I'm like, seriously, you did all that? But yeah, he's from crazy. California. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's the only, I believe he's the only one of his siblings that did not go to college. So, but he stayed in his father's industry. Okay. So, yeah. but it is interesting, isn't it? It is yeah. interesting. Yeah. So then 9-11 struck. Yeah, 9-11. I've been talking about going to military a couple different times and, my wife at the time did not want anybody in a uniform, police officer, fireman, military. She wanted to be entertained any of that. Um, so she told me I could not go back in. And then as 9-11 was approaching, I was talking to a recruiter. Okay, let me see. Maybe I can get in. Uh, back in, I, just, I was 30 years old. I, I'd been missing it. And then 9-11 happened just as I was talking to a recruiter like a month later. And uh, at that point, she said, you, you don't have to go in now. You just talk to the recruiter. You don't have to go in, right? I said, no, this is a sign I need to go back in. Wow. I knew with my experience, you know, the, the, the feeling of wanting to go back in all that time. And this happens just as I'm talking to the recruiter. It's perfect. It's definitely not perfect, uh, but it's definitely a sign, you know, that I knew yeah. that this is yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing. I knew with yeah. the experiences that I had at such a young age going to war that I could help the, the military today, the young kids, men and women that were going in with my experiences. I'd be a leader for them in that sense. And then again, I was still young enough to help fight for my country. So I want to do that. Wow. Wow. So did you, so you didn't hesitate? No, no. I was back in basic training the next month on Halloween. And so how did that affect the relationship with your wife when you're like, you know what, I'm going? How did she, that? She understood, um, was literally want me to, but she understand who I was and that that's, that was what I needed. Uh, it more affected me later on. Uh, my, my children not being around me. You know, they, they never were around the military. You know, I had to go back oh. to basic training. Yeah, they had no experience around military life, and I'm just taken them to a whole other world, and dad's gone. They had to go basic training, schooling. You know, I was gone for like eight months to nine months before I finally got them to where I got to my duty station, and then was able to bring them out. And then they get wow. to hang out, hang out for a year, and then dad's taken off to war, and it was just... It was a totally different thing. Yeah, before I didn't have the responsibility of having children, you know, risking all this stuff um, with the choices that I made. Now the choices that I made are affecting my children's lives. So that takes a lot out of you too. It makes you think about it. Was that really um, the most difficult thing for you in that in that time? Yeah, definitely the most difficult thing was being away from the kids and and worrying about how that's affecting them. You know, yeah. them having to change schools, uh, worry about dad being gone, and all that stuff. So. Yeah, it definitely was a burden on burden on me that I chose for myself. But yeah, that, that bothered me in the back of my head. Because that war was very different. Yes, yes. Very different this time, for sure. So tell me about uh, when 9-11 struck. Tell me about where you were and what that looked like for you that day. Yeah, I remember my wife was getting ready for work. We were on the West Coast. So, you know, East Coast, they're at work, Central going to work west coast we were just getting ready for work and right. i was just sitting in bed watching the news she was getting ready in the bathroom and we saw the news he's okay a commuter plane hit one of the towers they weren't sure what happened and just as a reporting that live you saw that vision you know the vision of the second plane mm-hmm. in the towers mm-hmm. uh, boom as soon as that happened i just said terrorist you know I you knew, knew. Right, away, right away yeah wow, and wow. So i knew boom, got to call the recruiter and uh Start moving this forward. Wow. So there was, abs- I mean, there was absolutely no mistake that you were meant to go back in then. Right. No, I knew. Holy yes. moly. It was only a month and a half later, I was back in basic training. Wow. With a lot of prior service. There was a lot of us. Uh, was came, there? That came back in. We actually had to be on hold once we got to our basic training camp. We had because there were so hold. many. We are backed up, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, because it's been how long you're out, too. So I was out for 10 years, so I had to go back to basic training. Yeah. To prove that you were fit enough. Yeah, and I needed it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a dad bod? 
Definitely. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's funny. That's awesome. Um, so going over having, having that first tour, doing all of that, the first, the first round, what was that? What was it like for you there with the young ones? It was a really neat position to be in being older, um, kind of adopted some of the younger ones kind of came, came like my, my, my children that I looked after. Uh, and so I was there for them because I had all that experience, but I was lower enlisted, you know, as far as rank went. So I'm equal to them. But then the higher enlisted guys that have been in for years had don't even have any war experience. And, wow. you know, some of them are still younger than me uh, or my age at that point, but they, they respected what I've done before. So I was definitely a go-between that kind of helped that communication gap that you would normally have a lot of times with the higher enlisted, with the lower enlisted, where it's, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, and I can kind of explain. <laughs> These are why some decisions are made, okay? So they're not, they don't mean personal against you. <laughs> so, right, right, you know, right. You're, you're younger. The mental game is the hardest part. Well, and because this is such a different thing, when you say that, what does that look like when you're there? So yeah, now it's definitely it's a urban warfare. Everybody's on the front lines. It doesn't matter if you're a female, if you're a cook, uh, whatever mm -hmm. your job might be worse for chemicals. You're like, I'm not supposed to go to war to be in the front lines. Everybody's on the front lines in this one. So it's a whole, whole different war than any other war. Wow. Wow. I don't know. I, um, I know lots of people that have served multiple times also, and I know it's difficult for them to even talk about it. So I really appreciate you even, even discussing it. I think that's, I think that's, a uh, amazing. It's very important. You know, people are like, Oh my God, these women can't be on the front lines in these different jobs. Uh, they've been doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they didn't yeah. have the title, but they were still doing it. So when you would come home in between tours, what did that look like? How many months were in between the tours? Because you did a total of three, correct? Correct. So 2003, the initial push in Iraq, I was there for 12 months. Wow. Came home for 10 months. Okay. During that 10 months, I had to go to a, a school for a, a little over a month to move up in rank to get my sergeant. Um, then I tried out for special forces during that time. I hurt my back. And then we had to move the family. So during okay. that time, I was in training. Uh, I was helping other people push out. We were always busy. And then we also had to move to another base. We had to move from North Carolina to Colorado. Oh, wow. Within that 10-month span. Wow. And then I was back over in Iraq again for another 13 months. So you were not there for like six months at a time. You were there for a long time at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I did wow. 12 months, 13 months. And then I was home. Now they changed the rules after this deployment that, if you're gone a year, you're home a year. Okay. If you're gone six months, you're home six months. So they, so we wouldn't get rotated as quick. Um, so this time I was home for a year, but then had to go to schooling again. And that was 2005 when I deployed that, that, that second time for a year. And then, yeah, I came home and still again had to do training, go to school, and move the family again. So where'd you year. go after that? I had to go to school on the way to move from Colorado back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, I had to stop at school in Virginia for a month oh, gosh. <laughs> and the family oh, went ahead and moved ahead of me. Oh boy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. If you understand that stuff, the life that happens, you know, even when you're home, you're not really home. You're training, you're going to schools, you're helping other people deploy. You're, you're so busy. You still barely see your family during this time. It's a lot. It's a lot. I grew up in a military town. So I think from that perspective, it did help me understand a little bit more about what happens, but it is, um, it is, it is a lot. It's a lot to expect and it's a lot to commit to. Yeah. So in between, what was your, you know, when you would come home and you would do the schooling and then moving, was there any like mental issues for you at that time? Were there any like mental health concerns at that time? Or were you just in like, we're in go mode here and we're just like constantly having to move? Exactly. You're, you're coming so there's no time to really. You're first kind of numb in the beginning. You're just numb. You don't, you can't make a decision. Where do you want to eat? Where do you want to go to the store? Like you just really want to sit on the couch and let everybody else make your decisions. <laughs> right, um, right, right. You just kind of just veg out and zone. And then when there's something to do, you, you start popping in. It's, you're trying to work back in discipline with the children too, being with the family, that role. 
So we're trying to work all that in together. But again, at the beginning, having a hard time to even focus. It's so much you get overwhelmed really quick. Wow. It's almost easier to be in the war zone. So <laughs> let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, when I talked to you yesterday, you said that. And um, I think people need to understand what that means. Yeah, your, your, your survival, what you have to do out in the war zone, your hypervigilance and be, you know, being on time for different schedules and you got to eat here. You're told when you're going to eat. <laughs> you're told right. when you go lay down, when you got a mission, um, what to do exactly. If this happens, this is what you do. And you just right. program. So when it happens, it just, you just do it. Right. Uh, so those things that keep you alive out there will drive you crazy back home. And that's oh. where we run into issues. We're waiting for someone to tell us what to do. Uh, all this stuff, all this information is overwhelming. I mean, the kids are excited. They want to jump on you and see you. I mean, you're kind of pushing your kids away from you. It's, it's hard. It's hard to really so the come back the, into it, transition back. The scale's tipped. There's oh, yeah. no balance. Totally tipped. No balance. You get overwhelmed. You shut down. And then next, you can't wait for the next deployment. You just want to get out. You want to get out and just get out there. It is much simpler. It's not that you don't love your family. You don't want to be with them. But it can be very overwhelming just being back. Wow. And by the time you start to get used to it, you're, you're out you're again. again. Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, That's an no, interesting I, perspective. I think, you know, you watch the movie American Sniper. Uh, when they showed Chris back home with his family, I thought that was a great, they did a great job of showing what it's kind of like, um, whether it's him vegging on the couch, seeing images, uh, a drill, you know, shocking him with uh, would being a trigger for him because you don't know it's not always a gunshot fire or loud noise depending on your experience out there mm -hmm. is where the triggers can come from interesting you think about now i can't watch those movies yeah the last movie <coughs> that i watched was saving private ryan so oh, that wow. tells you how long ago it was i can't watch them so i i just i sobbed the entire time i just i can't do it and there are some really powerful movies coming out soon and um that I'm familiar with the people that the stories are around. Yeah. And it's just, holy shit. It's just, it's, it's incredible what our uh, veterans have, have um, gone through, you know, for sure. So, you know, speaking of, you know, reenlisting and, and going in and going in and wanting to just get back. So did you feel like you were addicted to the feeling of wartime? Yeah. I don't know if it's a, it's not like a, there's a general rush you do can't ever get anywhere else <laughs> definitely if you're a general junkie which i kind of always was anyway okay okay um, yeah there's definitely a general in there that you get addicted to um it's not that you want war it's nothing like that none of us want to go to war we don't want to have to kill anybody we don't want to see anybody else get killed we'd love to be peaceful but if it needs to be done we, we're there we're ready for mm -hmm. it and that energy is there and uh definitely uh, something that's we're trying to do and want to do we want to get to the game if, we need, if we're needed so what was your job? So I was in transportation. So that would vary from bringing infantry in on some raids. So like in 2003, when we first went in the country, a lot of my missions were I would take infantry into where they got to do some raids or clear some parts of towns. So they would jump out of the back of the truck. I'd get on the top of the truck and kind of guard them as they went and collected prisoners and stuff like that. I'd watch the prisoners on the truck and we'd haul everybody back in. Wow. Uh, or we would to take supplies also, that type of thing. Uh, but mostly in 2003, it's you're moving into the country, taking over, doing a lot of those raids. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So being on, being on top of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming that there were certain orders that were, that were made there that you just, you know, you probably had to do and say some things that you probably didn't ever want to do or say, but had to. Right. There's all kinds of situations you could be in, depending on the mission. If you're doing a snatch and grab, someone turns somebody in, and they just got to go in and get somebody and yank them out and gather real quick. Or if they're actually got to patrol three blocks and kind of clear all these buildings and, and clear out the city to make sure there's no bad guys there. We did that a lot. Uh, we did missions where we helped civilians out. I mean, one of the hardest ones was 2005, where we had a town up north, Telefar, near the Syria border. We put berms all the way around it, went in. And cleared everybody out. Said, all right, if you're good, come on out through these checkpoints. They came out through the checkpoints and they're good. We would take the displaced civilians, bring them onto our camp or that area, and held them there until we went in, cleared out the town of all the bad guys, and then let them go back in. Now, at this point, 
we would drop them off at a certain point where we picked them up at. Wow. And they, some of them could not walk. A Sunni couldn't walk through a Shiite neighborhood or they would get killed by the other, the other Iraqis because wow. of their, their beliefs. And, but we couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't take them home to home and drop them off and deliver them home. It wasn't yeah. safe for us. But to sit there and let a family out knowing that that's just what you had to do, I mean, that was really hard to do. It's one of the things I remember uh, a lot that thinking about just I had to leave that family in the desert right there and, and, and wish them good luck. I mean, basically, I mean, they had no, no phones or something else we could do. So what about the kids? The kids are amazing. Uh, one of the funnest things I had out there, I mean, it's not all bad. You do a lot of humanitarian mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. um, every, every time I was out there, humanitarian stuff is the best where you're bringing water, bring some toys for the kids, some soccer balls, some food, maybe rebuild their school, fix their basketball hoop. Uh, that was a lot of fun. They always wanted to take pictures with us. Uh, some kids named their dog after me. Really? <laughs> I love it. I had to help set up this traffic control point. So I was out there every day setting up these barriers and kind of monitoring and getting this whole thing set up for uh, like uh, two weeks. And the kids would bring me tea and some bread and I'd bring them candy. And so I found out the next crew that went out there said, who's, who's, who's this Bobby guy? I, said, oh, that's I me. love it. And they go, well, the kids named that dog after you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, in 2004, I actually ran into a guy. We were talking. Uh, we already started rebuilding the country. Um, when, when, in 2004, we were helping rebuild the roads. Everything got destroyed during the fighting. So I was in charge of a detail to guard them. We hired Iraqis to go help rebuild their own, their own country. They had the guardrails on the side of the road and stuff. So we have an interpreter with us. And the interpreter tells me that one of the guys was in Desert Storm. I said, oh, I was in Desert Storm. So he said, oh, this guy was in Basra. I said, I was in Basra. <laughs> So this guy and I are now helping rebuild Iraq, but we were fighting each other back in Desert Storm. Holy shit. Yeah. Crazy. That is amazing. There, there's so many little stories out there that, you know, that aren't the war stuff. You know, you hear the wow. war Wow. Wow, Bobby. In 2003, a, a little kid saved my life. Our truck broke down and we, we had to guard it while the rest of the convoy went to go find help. It was the beginning of the war, so we really didn't have established bases. We didn't always know where everybody else was, these other units. So they went looking for help, and we were guarding the truck, started talking to the locals. One guy just happened to go to school in San Francisco, so he spoke good English. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of the little kids, I went to go to the bathroom. I was going to go behind a tree. The little kid said, no, Mr. Boom Boom. Stop me before I walked on the tree. <gasps> No shit. There was two little bomblets that we dropped. There's like a field that we dropped all these bomblets during the war part. And I almost stepped on one of our own little bomblets that we had dropped that we didn't know. Because we were moving forward so fast. Wow. Wow. And I have a picture of those bomblets, but I don't have a picture of that kid. And I oh. really today wish I had a picture of him. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It took me forever to tell that story without, without bawling. Yeah, that really took my breath away. At the time, Holy it's like, shit. oh, my God, dude, I almost blew up. You know, you're like, whoa, that's what you do. You kind of laugh at it. Like, yeah. Oh, this, this kid saved my life. High five. Uh, when you get back home, you're telling your family that story. That's boom. And then this it's kid, like. All the emotions. Like, I, almost, I, I, was almost, I was almost not here to tell you this. You know? That the reality really hits. Yeah. Holy moly. Wow. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my word. All right. We're going to take a quick minute here to give a shout out to our sponsor. So let's take a minute to shout out to Miracles of Joy Metaphysical Store and Spiritual Center. Go check out all the best merchandise online at www.miraclesofjoy.org or in their amazing store in Louisville, Texas. Use promo code AFW to get an additional 10% off your next merchandise purchase of incense, geodes, singing bowls, and spiritual jewelry. Also, so much more to make you feel like a spiritual ba badass. So thank you, Miracles of Joy, for believing in our little show. Okay, so um, you did a total of three tours, and it was your third tour that takes us to April 7th, 2007, correct? Yes, my third Operation Iraqi Freedom Tour was in uh, 07. Okay, so let's talk about that day. Okay, um, so that day, I don't remember. You don't remember anything? I, I remember having a cup of coffee that morning right before the convoy rolled out. And the only reason I remember that is when I found out who was in Humvee with me. Um, There's the only time the one Captain Grassball ever came out. 
Wow. So he was, he was the supply uh, captain who was in charge of all the supplies and routes, making sure stuff gets where it needs to go. Uh, so he wanted to come kind of check his routes out, make sure everybody's getting what they need and everything getting taken care of at the other bases. And so because he was there, I remember having a cup of coffee waiting, for, wait, waiting for him. He was running a little bit late that morning, so I was waiting for a cup of coffee. So I'm going to go get another cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the only reason I remember that morning at all is getting that extra cup of coffee. And then it, that was like 730 in the morning. And this happened okay. around five in the evening. Okay. We went so, all day long. So there. take us to what you recall after that day. Um, after that day, I woke up in a hospital in San Antonio, Texas. You were home. Medical center. Yeah. So you don't remember anything in between? Anything. But I got reports of it telling me what happened. So what, uh, what were your reports? The report says three to four artillery shells, 155 rounds, like kind of like you see on Hurt Locker, those big rounds for the, the tank shoot. Okay. So there's three to four, though, buried underneath the center road, went off underneath my Humvee. Blew the Humvee, threw it 20 meters, flipped it upside down, left a crater five foot deep, three foot, or oh, uh, three feet deep, five foot diameter, uh, burning the whole Humvee. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the pictures I have on social media of it. Um, it's flipped upside down on fire. You can see the door that I was came out of in that photo. Um, so they found a landline to where the guy was sitting and was hiding and detonated the bomb to blow us up. Wow. Um, four other guys in the Humvee died that day. I made it back to San Antonio in 72 hours. Wow. Yeah, they got me back to the States in 72 hours. Uh, my head was burnt to the skull. Left arm totally burnt. Had my hand for two years. Finally, so I take that off. Uh, legs burnt real bad. Six months inpatient. Three years total recovery uh, with physical therapy and everything. How yeah, many to, surgeries have you had total right now? To date, we're at forty-eight surgeries. Holy shit balls! <laughs> forty-eight. And I know uh, that's actually small compared to some of these burnt guys uh, that are burnt more, and their bodies are up there nineties. Wow. Crazy. Are you expecting to have any more? Yeah, I might need a couple more of my eyelids. Uh, that's basically what we're working on mostly now. My eyelids are probably like at 16, 18 surgeries just for my eyelids. Wow. They were, they were going to throw away the left eye because they didn't think really? they could save it. There's like no skin there. That eyelid's totally built off the skin from my hip, my body, everywhere. It's yeah. different skin grafts. Uh, and then they rebuilt. When well, you saw me when I first got injured, it looked like my eyes were falling out of my head. Yeah. So they were definitely just add to this eyelid. And then the uh, left eyelid is just totally reconstructed, which they've never done before. How's the eyeball, the vision? The vision is 2025 and 2020. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Holy shit. It's crazy. It pisses my kids off because they're blind as shit, right? Without their glasses. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is amazing. It's crazy. Now, I do because you see me wiping them. They, they yeah. run a lot. I can't close yeah. the left one. I never will be able to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but that's what I always tripping. But they've, they've done a lot, really good job this last one. They actually covered it with a piece of skin for a month. And then I went back to the doctor and he just sliced it open. That's what happened. Wow. Well, good. Well, not that it's great, but I mean, you can you can still see and you still have your eyeball. And that's amazing. Yeah. My, it's, it's crazy. My vision's good. My hearing's even better. It's insane. Wow. Internally, everything's fine. I don't, not any pain meds. So, so tell us what the, the process is. So you have three years of recovery. Yeah. Are you still officially in the military at this point or are you discharged? No, you're still in, you're still active duty trying to want to see where you're at totally before they can do the med board. Okay. Um, to med board you out. They need to know all the things like my hand. We had to wait two years. I told them to take it off in the hospital. Um, they said, give them 18 months to work on it. So I gave them time to work on it. Couldn't fix it. I was okay with it. Let's move forward. So that was kind of what took a little bit longer was waiting with the hand, trying to get that to work. And once we got that taken off, it took another year to finally go through the paperwork, finish it all up. So I got injured in 2007. I retired officially in 2011. Wow. Wow. So let's talk about the first time you saw yourself. Yeah, uh, it was a while. I didn't see myself. I saw myself in the hospital really for the first time. Um, I had to wear goggles 
and I was, so I couldn't really see anything. It's like medicine in my eyes. So it was really blurry, like driving in the rain with no wipers on. Like, okay. So I just listened to music. I knew all the staff by their uh, voices. Okay. I could hear them come down the hallway. I could tell you who's coming. Yeah. Um, but with the first time was when I had to shave myself one time because my wife had left to go get the kids or something. And then, so my sister was watching me and I didn't trust anybody else to shave me. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> um, so I went to shave. And so I had to clean my eyes out to look in the mirror. And the funny thing is at first it was just, oh, okay, I'm broken, but they're working on it. I'm just yeah. in the shop. They're going to fix me. Yeah. So I really thought I was going to go back. I was, I was, I was going to go back and try out for special forces again. I was going to go back and get deployed again. I was going to be no go shit in the hospital. I didn't realize how bad it was. Really? I thought they're just going to fix me and I get out of there and you know, drink some water, do some push-ups, get back to work. <laughs> so now let me ask you this because I've heard this before, but I don't know how, I don't know how true the statement is. So I've heard with certain uh, burn degrees, it can go to the place where there's no feeling left because the nerves have been severed. Was that your case or not necessarily? Yes. Yeah. With the military, when they give you a percentage, like the third, technically 38%, that 38% is full thickness. Now, so, some, some hospitals will give it a different uh, civilian side. They'll say, oh, you're, you're 50% burnt, but that's not all full thickness. When the military says that it's the full thickness and that's the one you're talking about where they got to move skin from other places, put it there. And so you can cut my head and I won't feel it down to the bone. Wow. So you have know. no, no feeling like at all. Really red spot yep. right there. Yeah. So I got to be careful that that happens to me all the time. I bump my head. I can get infected really easy. And you can't see or can't feel it. Feel it. No, yeah. you could literally take a knife and cut it. I bump my head down to the bone with the bone showing. And Bobby. Uh, wow. Yeah, I've done that. I'm getting into a golf cart. Just kind of skinned me, almost scalped me a little bit. Oh, shit. The problem is I was sober. <laughs> I get hurt when I'm sober, right? If I was more relaxed, I kind of fell into the golf cart better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my. I can easily do that. So I got to be careful of getting an infection in my head because uh, they said, you can see it's all lumpy. Yeah. Uh, if you could really tell, I can't tell if you could tell, but yeah, we it's really see. lumpy. They shaved parts of my skull off to get tissue to grow back on top of it, to get the healthy bone there. So that's why really? I have all these craters in my head. Very interesting. And that is actually my stomach on my head. Wow. Actually, so you had, you've grafted a lot of your own grafts. Yeah, your body's going to reject other grafts. It's going to reject the cadaver skin. They put the cadaver skin on the beginning. If you don't have enough skin to cover where you're burnt, they'll throw some cadaver skin on there to help block it so it doesn't get infection to help it keep it clean. Till they what about the skin. fish cells? Have you heard about that? The fish skin? Did that do anything or no? I have not heard of that. Um, I don't know if it's a newer thing. I know they were doing, working with pig skin, horse skin, and different yeah. things. Um, and they have breaking little molecules and yeah. pieces. Yeah. Fish scales, I would like that. I mean, I'm, I'd go, I, I'd like to look like Aquaman. We could take it. <laughs> I got the tattoos. I just, you know, need the superpowers. Right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I think you've got plenty. I think you've got plenty. So let's talk about when you're going through this process and how you're, you know, oh, well, you didn't finish talking about when you first saw yourself. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, it was just, I thought they were going to fix me. I didn't, it didn't bother me because I thought they're going to fix me. Plus, I was okay. a lot of medication too. <laughs> okay. Really okay. high dose of medication, um, methadone and Percocets and stuff. Yeah. Like anybody would take my medication would have just OD'd probably. Wow. Because it was so high. Yeah. The, the burn survivors have to do that. I mean, I went from 210 pounds to 160 pounds like that. I mean, I wow. Great lady to lose weight, but I don't suggest trying it. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. But it, it actually took me, um, besides that, it, it took me about three years to get used to my face. Um, I didn't like the way I looked. Of course, I felt insecure about it. Uh, I didn't want to go to restaurants because I was afraid I'd ruin somebody's appetite in the beginning. <gasps> really? Yeah, I was really insecure about the way I looked. With bandages, eyeballs popping out, it was crazy. Wow. But it, it took three years till I got used to, okay, this is what I look like. And now I look at old pictures and they're like, shit, I'm better looking now. <laughs> <laughs> look at that. I love it. I love it. So how did this process work with your family when they uh, first saw you? And, and let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my, my wife at the time had to, of course, take care of the kids, you know, take mm -hmm. care of three children at the house. Mm -hmm. She had to get them off to school, then take care of me. Like she would actually have to clean 
my head, take the bandage off, wound care, clean that tissue on my head, put it back on. And this took about four hours to clean me and change my bandages, then take me to appointments all day long. Then the kids wow. would come home from school. Uh, so it was really hard on the family. Uh, my young, my oldest daughter still, uh, just became a parent when I was in the hospital. She was 15, and she basically became one of the parents now. She just stepped up. She got her license early. Texas gave her her license at 15, and she would get dinner for her brother and sisters, help them with homework, bring food to the hospital. Uh, she was just doing everything. Wow. So she really had to step up. The other two were 9 and 10 years old when it happened. Wow. So it was a lot. It was a big burden on the family. I had survivor's guilt. Um, I, I felt like a burden to my family. Like I said, I was talking about earlier decisions that I made, choices that I made that I felt I needed to do. Uh, my children don't understand. And now I'm putting them through this for dad going right. to war after war and then getting injured. And I just felt bad that they had to worry. Every time I went to surgery, they weren't sure if I was going to make it out. And so that's why I, I prayed to God every night just to take me. Well, let's talk about that. So... Um, did you ever contemplate actually killing yourself? It's definitely something that crosses the mind. Um, cause you think your family's better off without you. Um, and when you, when we, we hear about these suicides all the time, Yes, unfortunately, but I think what they're doing at that point is they're taking themselves out because they think they're helping their family. It's not a selfish thing they're doing. No. Because I know when I thought about it, it's like, they'd be better off. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I would just die every night, uh, you, know, you know, should I, should I kill myself? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, you know, those thoughts happen. You don't act on them. Uh, I think because of my children, that helped me for sure not to act on it. Um, you know, thinking about, well, what would they think? You know, I had, I had to think that I had to be strong for them. And that's what helped me through a lot in the beginning. It's just, even though I was thinking those things and praying to God every night, I would right. joke with my children. I wouldn't show them that, that side, side of me. Yeah. Um, I'd go in the room. I'd just shut down. I'd punch the clothes in my closet, you know, look in the mirror and just cry and just try to get it out. Yeah. Um, and so I could be strong for them. So, I mean, they were, they were a great inspiration for me to keep driving on. Well, let's talk about your angels a little bit. Yes. So my angels have been taking care of me all this time. Um, there are four of them. The four men mm -hmm. that were on be with me. And... They need four of them. They got to take shifts because I, I cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> when my angels are with me. Uh, they, they've been guiding me. I've been listening to them. Uh, they talk to me when, I, when I'm running. I love to run and, and go away and escape. And I believe that's where my angels are sending me this message of things that I can do, how I can live for them. You know, that survivor's guilt in the beginning was so hard. But I realized, and I put it in perspective this way, for anybody else out there who might be going through survivor's guilt, Think about if you were the one that didn't make it home. What would you want for the ones that made it? Oh. You know, and they want that for us. Even their families have told me um, that they're, they're proud of me. They're, they want to see me do well. They want me to live for them too, you know. And that's what we got to do. We can't, I can't waste this. I mean, if I sat on the couch feeling sorry for myself and going, oh, my God, I'm useless today. I'm wasting a life that I've been given that any one of them would trade places with me. So I cannot waste it all. I got to keep living again for my children. I got to be strong. I got to lift my angels and their family. I got to continue to make a difference and to make sure they're remembered. You're never truly gone until you're forgotten. And this is why you make me cry. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I gotta, gotta pull it together because you're right. You're absolutely right. It's, it it's would be a waste. A waste. They die in vain. And so I got to wow. keep, keep it going. And then is, does it, Come hard sometimes, yeah. It now, did I me. see that you just connected with one of the moms? So, oh no, I met the actually ended up meeting the okay. stepmom of Mark Mark Bingham, one of the nine eleven or nine eleven. Okay, nine yeah, eleven flight ninety three. Okay, here okay. took down the plane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. She told me you know, all these years that she's been following me, and that helps her um, when you know losing her stepson like that. That that that. Everything I did kind of helped her out. Um, I was like, wow. So we sat there and we hugged and we cried and shared some awesome moments together. The other night. See, and that's what it's about. Yeah. That's so it's, what it's, it's about. It's so funny. It's, it's, that weekend, I thought I was going to help out them. 
but not her <laughs> specifically, but okay. I'll go, you know, my buddy, uh, John Tigan from Benghazi, he's having a fundraiser mm-hmm. for his organization. Hey, can you make it out? Yeah, I'll come on out and do some comedy and hang out and stuff like that with the other guys, do some entertainment. I could help out. Well, I know I was going to get help that weekend, you know. It's, 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 it's how it works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're the reminder and sometimes we need to be reminded. Yes. Take care yes. of you. Know. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, I have to say, Bobby, you're one of the most beautiful souls that I've ever been blessed enough to encounter. So um, this has been, I really, I just have to say it again, I'm so appreciative of your vulnerability and your conversation because holy shit, sir, you've been, you've been through it. You've yeah. definitely been through yeah. it. I've learned from the beginning, uh, you know, after I kind of go to that hump of being, you know, the survivor's guilt and praying to die every night. Um, I thought, you know what? I'm here. I started getting my independence mm-hmm. back and I say, no, if I'm here just to raise my children, if I'm yeah. here to help them get to that next level because they're going to raise the next president or something, who knows? You never you know, know. You don't know why we're really here. Yeah. Um, and you, you're never going to know. You may never know that answer. Yeah. Uh, even if you think you do. Like, that's, right now, I think I know why I'm here. But the things keep changing for me. I think yeah. I'm supposed to be here to be this comedian. I'm going to be the speaker. But then another door opportunity opens where I'm running a nonprofit or, hey, do you want to be in this movie? It's like, really? Like, it, it's, it's amazing. My life's yeah. been really blessed since I've just – Followed my angels. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's just it, right? You're, yeah. You're playing in the magic up. of manifestation. Yeah. And the more people I can help by sharing my story, just by being me, chasing my dream, showing that you could, it's possible. Yeah. If yeah. I can do it, you can do it. And if I can show people it's possible and help them through something, then yes. that's the best revenge I can get. Oh, wow. That is, that is fantastic. So let's talk about what your daily routine looks like for your mental health and wellness. Like, what do you do for yes. yourself every day? Because I know you love your donuts. <laughs> I do. You but do. those are bad for my mental health because I feel guilty right afterwards. Oh, my God. So let's talk about what it is that you do for your, your mental health and your wellness. Because I think, I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, when you go through a shitstorm and you feel the way, the depths yeah. of feelings, you know, how to maintain that, that sense of happiness um, in the life. So go, sir. Here it is. All we, right. We are just like a house. Cheers. Your body. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm supposed to be talking right now. Your body is, you are a house. Imagine this of your house. I know that's the worst thing to say to a woman. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm with you. I'm actually with you. I love metaphors. So, so you're good. You buy the house and you think, okay, about this house is done. I make a payment on it. It's fine. It's not fine. You got to constantly repair it. Yes. You're, you're going to need some new flooring. The carpet is going to be redone. The, the foundation is going to settle. The window's going to crack. You're going to need a new roof. Well, to repair those, you need different skills. Different skills, different people to come help you, a team that know how to do those skills. And you're constantly keeping your house up with insulation, everything, and, and making it better so it lasts longer. Your body's the same way. You got to have those different things. There's not one thing that's going to magically help it. You can't just go to the gym and say, that's it, that works, um, which is one of the great things to do, though. So I do start off at the gym is one of my therapies to help me and to keep a routine. Routine is very good um, for my mental health, for sure, which is hard to do with what I do. <laughs> right, because you travel a lot, don't you? Yeah, it, it's, and this is the busy time of the year where I'm, I'm traveling pretty much in, until Christmas. You know, I'm home for a couple of this weekend, and then uh, I think uh, I'm gone for maybe the rest of the year. <laughs> wow. So yeah, cre- creating that consistency would be difficult. Yeah, I come home. I mean, the last 10 days, I come home, I go to sleep, wake up, do laundry, pack, and catch another airplane. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but there's different things. You know, different skills. You need these outlets. Uh, you know, I used to talk about earlier before, with, you know, my, my service dog is to help me during that downtime. I need her to be there with me and my companion to, to, to let me know everything's okay and make me feel better, which just dogs do naturally. Now, are you going to take her with you this bottom half of the year, do you think? Yes, yeah. She mostly mm-hmm. goes with me uh, most of the time. Uh, there are times that depend on how busy of a schedule I have when I'm gone uh, that can actually add anxiety to me. Right. Uh, it's easier by myself when I'm doing all that traveling because then I'm worried about her. Does she got to go to the bathroom? Does she have enough water? Does she need to go play? Oh. Um, but meanwhile, I don't want to take any time. If I have a chance to talk to somebody, to help somebody with something, I can't be distracted with that. But at both times, I'm, I'm worried about both things. Right, <laughs> um, right. So that can add more anxiety to me. So Interesting. So, yeah, she may stay home a lot. But this uh, coming up, yeah, we're going to do a road trip to Colorado coming up and stuff. But 
when you're working on yourself, you got to find these outlets. And, and that's, that's why I started the nonprofit because I've learned over the last 12 years by doing these outlets help me. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's the, the therapy of going to the gym, the therapy of writing. Uh, you know, I, I write poetry, I write songs, uh, and obviously comedy. Getting those things out, write yes. them down. You know, yes. whether it's writing, talking. If you don't want to write, talk. Talk to a tape recorder. Talk about how you're feeling that day. You don't want to tell anybody else. You don't have to tell anybody else. Right. Tell it to a tape recorder so you got it out of you and yes. it's there. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, Both it, of them. It, it really helps. Yeah. Uh, and you find an outlet, a hobby that, that helps you. Uh, even just going golfing. Uh, find a sport because you're concentrating so much on hitting that damn little ball. Yeah. <laughs> Craig knows? is over here. La- he's like agreeing. Yes. You're, yes. You're out there. I mean, it's the dumbest thing. I don't get golfing. I mean, I don't know why a man would brag about finishing a hole <laughs> unless folks are his friends, right? But, I love it. But you're right. But it does. It really helps. Uh, bowling. Bowling is another fun thing. It's something simple everybody can do. Right. You go bowl, you roll the ball, it knocks down pins, you destroy something, it feels good. Right. Right. <laughs> but right. Anything to take your mind and concentrate on something. And that's why I want to teach other people how to do these things. Um, not that I know how to do all these things, but I'm partnering up with experts that do. Yeah. And will help yeah. give an introduction to some of this stuff, to painting, to welding, to forging, to writing, to give outlets. And again, like I said, to fix your house, uh, you need these different skills. So I need to one day, I need to paint. One day, I need to smash on some metal. You know, one day, right. I need to write it all down. I need to know how to do that and how to better those skills or how to meditate is one of the things I want to learn. Oh, uh, I can talk to you about that. I want to learn that. Uh, you know, it's I know, not that I know difficult. There's, there's it's the mind there, fuck. Right? <laughs> yes, it's the mind fuck. But it's once not, you get through that, you're easy. It's easy. Even, even with ADD? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm telling you, it is so simple. So let me ask you, I'll, I'm going to yeah. ask you this. Yeah. So what is it you, that you do that you lose yourself in? That I lose myself in? Mm-hmm. So like, for example, if I'm cleaning my house, I totally lose myself cleaning my house. Yes. I, but you got, it takes a while to get started on that. Right? <laughs> it's that slow in you when you clean the house. I'll pick this yes. up. Next thing you know, you're lost. Yes. I got I to complete something. If I start into something I need to complete, yes. otherwise nothing will get done. Yes. But yeah, no, running, the gym, I lose myself in that. Writing. I will just so, go into another world, a place that like, I feel like I'm not even where I'm at when I'm writing. Bobby, Bobby. <laughs> yes, come back. That's, that's meditation. Oh. Oh, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> that's meditation. Damn it. Right? So I can, well, I always picture that I'm just to be quiet and not do anything. You don't have to. So the writing is meditation when if I'm doing that. Yes. Oh, yes, because I bet you, you if I had that. to bet, you're probably channel writing, yeah. meaning when you're writing, you'll write a shit ton out. And then when you go back and read it, you're like, where the fuck did that come from? Yeah. And I go back and move stuff around afterwards and kind of yeah. we, we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's just being in your moment, being present with it. And then because I know with me when I write, I'll write stuff. And then when I go back, I'm like, where did that come from? Like, yeah. I don't even remember. But that's a form of meditation. So meditation is nothing but simply understanding that you're losing the judgment of what you think meditation is. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's your yeah. mind fuck. <laughs> yeah, right? There you go. And Craig says meditation is being in the present, in the which present. is true. Yeah. Which is true. It's just being right here without thinking behind you or in front of you. Getting rid of that ego out of the way. Yeah. And getting in the heart space, which yes. you're very good at. You're very good at. So let's talk about a little bit about how you coped through moving through all of this with your family. Yeah, uh, moving through it all. Uh, when, when I'm trying to figure out, like I said, I was praying <laughs> to God to, to let me die every night just to take me home with everybody else. Um, and the amazing thing is, you know, that faith is what got me through. Obviously, my sense of humor. But the faith, because I was an atheist. Shut the fuck up. So for me, praying is the shocker. When I woke up from my coma in an hospital, I remember it being, the best way to describe it is on a giant iceberg at nighttime with stars out. Okay. Voices coming out of the sky telling me that I'm going to be okay and my family's waiting for me. Wow. Doctors said there's no medical explanation why I was alive. The doctor's like, we don't even know why he's alive. It doesn't make sense. Wow. And that's when I knew 
okay, I'm here for a reason. Somebody else wanted me here. There is a higher power. Yeah. Even then, I knowing that, I'm like, okay, you wanted me here, but I don't understand it, so just take me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then How long was that process? How long was that praying to die process? How long was that hanging on for you? Do you know? Over, Do you remember? Over a year. Over a year. Really? Almost, almost 18 months because that's, I know, until we got the skin to work on my head, I had five failed surgeries on my head. Oh, wow. So it was oh, just wow. scary through all that time. And so when it finally got the skin to close on my head, that's when it was like, okay, we kind of got through that. The, the chance for infection was less and we kind of started getting my dependence back. And that's when I said, okay. Show me why I'm here, you know? Wow, yeah. And everybody kept telling me to be patient, you know? And one of the funny stories with religion is <laughs> my buddy in 2003 would always try to get me to read these books, these religious okay. books. And he'd give okay. me a hard time. I didn't care. I, didn't, I was one of those atheists. Oh, I don't believe, don't believe. I just, hey, this is for me. It's not even not for you. No big deal. Right. Uh, so my buddy always tried to get me to read these books and teasing me, and I wouldn't read them, of course. Okay, yeah. So fast forward, I wake up, I'm praying. Um, this church comes to the hospital. They help me out. They help my family out. So when I get out of the hospital, I want to thank this church. I want to go okay. to the church and thank them. I go there, and the pastor's name is Max Licato. Okay. Who's a big motivational speaker. He speaks everywhere. Uh, religion, in, the religious, in the religious world, people know him. Okay. I call my friend. I said, hey, this church is really cool. It's huge. They had sheriffs directing the traffic. And the pastor's name is Max Licato. He says, you freaking idiot. Those are the books I was trying to get you to read. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Back in 2003, he's trying to get me to read Max Licato's books. And it's Max Licato and his church that adopted me when I was injured. Wow. Another eye-opener. They go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's something else bigger out here that uh, has a plan. Now, as a human, we have the choice to chase, to accept that, you know, accept that route. Mm -hmm. Like I said, mm -hmm. I don't have to. I could have sat there and did nothing. But I knew I had to, at that point, live for my children, show them that strength, be an yeah. example, um, listen to my angels and live for them. You had to rise up. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. wow. And there's a, another weird uh, thing I look at, too. It kind of freaks me out is, you know, I got <laughs> blown up the day before Easter. Oh, wow. I got back to the States in 72 hours. And I have an angel on my neck. I don't know if you can see that scar that. Makes an angel. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. So Isn't it amazing? Nothing so happens. Many. Everything happens for a reason. There's no mistakes, right? Right. And as, as humans, uh, you know, like I, people go, oh, my God. But, but what if God, you know, wanted you to get blown up? No, he didn't. That's if that not, was the case, you would have stepped on no. that thing and that little kid would not have told you. Yeah. That human made a decision to blow me up. Mm-hmm. God made the choice at that time. Oh, I can still use you. Yeah. And brought, sent me back. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the angels at all? You want what to talk about, about them? like how old they were and what their ranks were and what their jobs were and stuff. You don't have to, if you don't want to. So you know, the biggest thing is with me is uh, when I was out there, um, this tour was only three and a half weeks total length. I was in oh, country wow. on three and a half weeks when I got hit. I was only with the unit for two weeks. Maybe a week okay. and a half, two weeks. I barely knew them. I barely knew my angels. I knew the driver, Rodney McCandless, the most because um, he was coming back from leave as we were, um, as I was transferring out there. So when I got there with him, I was with him a short time. I barely knew him. Um, my gunner, I talked to a couple of times, Levi Hoover, uh, Captain Grassball sitting behind me, I met twice. And E.B. Molo, I met a couple of times because he was out at a different base. And we were actually picking him up to bring him back into another base. So um, I say their names, so I don't make sure they're not forgotten and they're mentioned. Yeah. But I barely knew them. So my thing, too, in the beginning, too, with that survivor skill is I didn't know these guys. I wanted to know them more. I wanted to feel more pain. <clears throat> they're comrades. I feel a lot of pain for losing my buddies. But, you know, I felt if I knew them more. I want to feel pain as much as I can. And I never feel the same pain as the family. But I felt like I, I deserved to have more pain. Um, Oh shit! Which is which is crazy, but it's that's why I felt I need I need to have more pain because I don't remember it and I barely knew them. So my quest was to get to know who they were. Yeah. And uh, Time Magazine did a documentary on it back in 2013, where I met the driver's sister and father for the first time. I met Rodney's, Rodney's family for the first wow. time. Wow! Wow! And they sat there and talked to me and told me about Rodney and all this stuff. Um, 
how he was. We found out, you know, E.B. Molo was from the Ivory Coast. He's actually a prince uh, from the Ivory Coast in Africa. And then uh, Jonathan Grassball met his wife in college and they had a great love story, uh, both in the military. Um, so it's it really neat. And Levi Hoover's mom reached out to me. Finally, she took the longest to kind of deal with everything and, and process. And I knew the families had to have their own time. But yeah, I met her a few years ago, went out to the house. I saw the house that they still live in, that, that, that Levi and his sister helped his mom actually build with their own hands. So that was wow, really neat to see all that and, and just to talk to their families and let them know what I'm doing today and, 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 and make sure I'm going to make sure they're not forgotten. So all their families follow me and we keep in touch um, through social media, of course. And if ever I'm in their city, you know, I always try to, to say hello. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. And I think it's important that we do remember them. Yes. You know, it's important for sure. So what advice do you give to the youth today? That are struggling join the military um, <laughs> do you do you think no. so no my, my son talks about it back and forth with it one of my sons the youngest or younger one of the sons mm -hmm. uh, talks about it um he's a couple years of college he's not sure what he wants to do right now mm -hmm. i said well it's, it's it's always an option if you want to do it if you don't know what you want to do it's it's actually so a really good option so with everything you've gone through now, I have to admit, I'm yeah. surprised you're not like anti-military after getting blown the fuck up. <laughs> but so for you, you're you're a proponent of go for it. Yeah, definitely. I would I would love to have make everybody go in the military, um, like some of these other countries do too. Because Iran does that, right? I yeah. Believe. yeah. Uh, see, uh, Israel does it for sure. Oh, Israel. That's what I meant. Israel. Yeah. And, and then even then, when they do it, they still have a choice if they want to be a combat that you know in the military, the combat side or, or an office job. They have that choice. Yeah. But they do have to serve and, and trade that off for the college. Yeah. Come do a couple of years, get a couple of years of college, do a trade. Yeah. I think it'd yeah. be great. It really helps you grow up and you really don't know what you want to do at, at 17, 18 no. years old. When you graduate, you start school. No. How, many, how many kids go and change their mind with their degree and it takes longer? Go to the military first, serve, see the world a little bit, understand why we, we get mad when someone disrespects the flag, <laughs> what it takes, <laughs> what these other countries do don't have what we do have it's amazing you appreciate this country a lot more if you do you know that's the truth right there that's the truth for sure that's really interesting i like that yeah i have no problem with uh, doing it. i mean it'll be great great i mean i think we have a much better country we can make it better even better than it already is this great that's country awesome. of ours yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I think that's, you know, I did a lot of traveling um, in my corporate job when I, well, even when I was a contractor, I, I had it and traveling to different countries that, you know, have a lot less than we do. And it's like, you know, that puts everything in perspective. It really does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I traded a guy uh, in 2005, a pair of boots, and he built me a bookshelf. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me how he had a noisy truck. He's a carpenter. He was working on one of Saddam's palaces. His truck was too noisy for Saddam, so they threw him in jail for five days. Oh, wow. Can you imagine living like that? No. It's, just, it's insane. Yeah. We're very blessed here. Very, very. We, I mean, the country has its issues, but oh, yeah, yeah, no. who doesn't? Every, exactly. every person has an Nothing's issue. Perfect, so. But that's what yeah. I love about this country. It has its issues, and you can change it. Yeah. That yeah. flag gives you the right to change it. That, that represents a country that allows you to go and change the bills, to change the laws. Yeah. And you could do that if you really want to. There's ways yeah. to do that. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It ain't always going to be easy. The, doing the right thing and making a big difference is not easy. No, sir. <laughs> no, sir. Is there anything you want to add tonight, Bobby? You've just been such a joy. Oh, well, thank you. You're um, welcome. What I add, I mean, check out uh, my nonprofit, of course. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and we're talking about, you know, deal with the mind stuff. You know, what's strong with you? You know, mm -hmm. some people didn't like that. I don't know if you see it. I got a little weight set yeah. on it. Hashtag what's strong with you? Yeah. And, and put a weight set. It's like, oh, you have to do with working out. No, that's part of it. Part of yeah. it's working out. But the part of it is having the strength to lift that weight off of you. Mm -hmm. And that's why I have the, 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 the weight on there. It's not just mm -hmm. for working out. That weight is to talk about the weight, lifting the weight off to you. Mm -hmm. Having the strength to get through whatever it is you're battling. And so that's what it's about. Focus awesome. on what's strong with you to build up the, what's weak with you and use those strengths to build your weaknesses and get through life. I love it. I love it. I love it. 
Well, you've just been spectacular. Bobby, you're such a light for so many people. And again, I am just so blessed that you decided to come on our little podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, thanks for having me on. Appreciate oh, it. you're so welcome. And maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get you to Dallas. Yeah, I might be coming through there. Actually, Never know. I, I'm doing a tour in Colorado next month, doing a comedy tour. Uh, oh my October. God, I love it. So. I love it. There's a there's a group of veterans here that have a comedy thing here too. So I'm, yeah. gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to do some investigating. Hmm. You got it. You got hyenas out there. You got some good clubs out in Dallas area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The owner of comedy club. What's that, Craig? I was saying I work with the owner of comedy club Dallas. Oh, did you hear him? Well, tell him you know the well done comedian, and uh, he's got That's a lot of friends in the Dallas area. Yes, <laughs> the well done comedian. I love it. I love it. Well, Bobby, thank you so much. Uh, we honor your bravery, your grit, and your story. So thank, thank you. you. Appreciate you guys having me. Yes. Craig and I thank you for joining us tonight. Please subscribe to our little show at our patreon.com backslash welcome. This week, don't forget we have our contest running to get our basket of AFW gear. So go check out our merchandise on the podcast uh, website at www.allfuckswelcome.com. Keep an eye on the contest because it is going now until October 1st. So let's get those shares going. So that way you can win a basket of goodies. So get out there this week, y'all, and give two fucks this week. Okay? Peace.